For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as in a cave. We invite you now to join us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle, Timothy O'Donnell, and Joseph Tomasian. Join us in the Catholic Cave. Welcome once again to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kent Blanford in the cave with me, your two favorite troglodytes, Mr. Timothy O'Donnell, Mr. Mark Tuttle. The Catholic Cave is all about philosophy. And when I say the word philosophy, most people automatically start to think of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, the ancient Greeks. Well, there's also a branch of philosophy that's more appropriately labeled modern philosophy. Gentlemen, what is modern philosophy? Who are the main characters playing in that on that stage? And um, how does that equate or function in the same realm as Catholicism? Okay, well, we only have an hour, Kent. That's a big question. That's like a full year of undergraduate work. <laughs> at least, yeah. Well, I just toss out the question, now I sit back and watch. Right. <laughs> All right, so. Modern philosophy. Modern philosophy. Where did it okay. come from? Where's it going? Yeah, I would say, uh, I think when I hear the term modern philosophy, I think of a, a period of time. It's often um, in the history of philosophy. So like this history of, of the tradition and like uh, tradition, like anything else that stretches back, you know, 23, 2400 years, there's different sort of time periods where um, you can sort of cluster uh, activities, actions, thinkers, and sort of associate them in a, in a, in a general sense of a kind of category um, in this case, we, we're, we're going to look at the modern, the emergence or dawn of the, the modern era for philosophy. Um, and so I, I'm going to say, I think traditionally, most, most philosophers, when you're studying uh, the history of philosophy, would look at the, the birth really with uh, Rene Descartes. Yeah, 16th century. Yeah, you, know, you 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 go back you look, you know, 16th, 17th century and that that is that is Descartes. So so Descartes is credited with kind of revolutionizing philosophy by taking an inward turn. And I think that inward turn is in my mind really what what sort of characterizes modern philosophy as opposed to what had come before it. And if you look at it that way, I'm not quite sure it's as, you know, straightforward uh, a dividing line with, okay, everything before Descartes is, is, is medieval scholastic, everything after Descartes, because you have, you have a transition there. And, um, you know, I think Descartes mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, he didn't just come out of a vacuum. Um, yeah, know, it was, wasn't like presto, he's right, here, exactly. you know, something he, completely novel. He was, but, uh, you know, he was sort of expounding, I think, stuff that was in the air during his time. And, um, you know, and in some ways was sort of the messenger of things that had already shifted. Um, and so I think you got to go back a little bit. And I think the very beginning of it starts with this shift in, in um, it starts with a shift in scholastic thought where you go from really St. Thomas Aquinas's thought into thought that's more 
influenced, I won't say it was necessarily always his thought, but more influenced by Duns Scotus and the idea of voluntarism. So I think that shift is really sort of where you begin. And and William of Ockham, too. I mean, between Ockham and and Duns Scotus, I think you're beginning to shift more in towards something's modern, changing but, something's changing but we're getting kind of erudite i think we're going to start <laughs> yeah i can i can uh, see our uh, do, do ears glaze over i guess i, <laughs> right. I, can, I can i can watch our, our listeners ears start to glaze over right, as we're talking about right. this a little bit so let's let's step back a little bit and um let's talk first going up to modern times what would you say was philosophy like that's different than it is now what changed? Because we're, we, you know, when we talk about modern philosophy, we're talking kind of about swimming in the waters of modernity to a certain extent. I mean, it's hard to describe the water, and in a lot of ways, that's that's kind of where we are. We 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 live and breathe modern philosophy. Mm-hmm. So, um, what was different in medieval times, in the scholastic era, in the era leading up to modern times, that has has shifted and changed? Well, I I would say something that was uh, that. Descartes introduced in a in a bold, dramatic, new way not not necessarily novel, um, but new way that's still with us is radical skepticism. I'd say that's what he, and that's still with us because there's uh, there's still uh, we're still there's still a lot of skepticism out there and radical skepticism. So are you sure it is? Are right, really exactly. Sure? Right, yeah. right. Well, it manifests itself in our current setting, which I I would say is mo- we're in a, we're no longer in the the modern period. We're in a kind of a postmodern um, setting. But I would say that's that lingers quite quite a bit. Yeah, we don't even da- it's so much so we don't even unless some unless you unless you're pausing and uh, really reflecting on your own set of suppositions, your own elements, your own say worldview. You don't even realize how much of that we, we've adopted. Yeah, you you think back to scholastic um, scholastic philosophy, and um, you know things were were pretty well handed down and accepted, right? And and yeah, I think there's a lot of confidence, right, right? A lot of confidence, not only not only in the authority of thinkers that came before you, and that's that's a whole other question. This whole idea of authority that, in some ways, is a modern concept, but we can kind of get into that. Um, but um, things were things were sort of just accepted as they were handed down, or your senses, the 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 data that you received from your 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 sight, your your you know what what you could see, what you could hear, you just sort of assumed that is the way reality is. And um, you're right, there's a shift there to where that's no longer the assumption, right? So the way we see things, the way we hear things, the way we perceive reality, I think we understand that. Underneath that, um, underneath the appearances of things, there's a reality that we can't perceive, that we can't see, right? Um, you, you look at the table, the table looks brown, but we know, we know because of modern science that it really is kind of atoms that are bouncing around and, um, you know, the, that you can't see. And there's gaps within, there, there, there's space that's actually in the table that you can't perceive. So uh, we, we begin to not trust our senses to a certain extent. And then also with, uh, you know, it's a long story, but um, the idea of authorship and authority um, really, that was almost non-existent in, in medieval mm-hmm. times. Um, you know, who wrote a particular thought or who wrote a particular book was irrelevant. It just was. It was knowledge. It was part of the whole big 
the whole big you know understanding of the universe and who who it came from or who wrote it wasn't all that relevant and it's not until you get into printing press and and mm-hmm. sort of um, the the selling of books rather than the dictating of books that you start to have attention paid to the authority the the author the person that's actually saying this and with that brought about a certain amount of skepticism because you know when you got just general knowledge you think you can trust that, right? This is what everybody knows. But when mm-hmm. you when you've got when you've got Tim O'Donnell or Mark Tuttle telling you something, you might want to be weary. Um, you know, you, you, well, yeah, <laughs> you might <laughs> that kind of goes without saying. You might not be able to trust <laughs> those guys. So um, with with authorship and authority comes skepticism on sort of the other side of it. And once again, that that's kind of... Well, you a, get competing a, ideas vis-a-vis the printing press that you didn't have before. But, you know, I, I think this goes back to Descartes a little bit. Once knowledge became to be understood as something that was interior to people. It was it was something that people had. It was something that you owned and possessed, right? You owned the knowledge because it was inside of you. So it's that interior turn that came with Descartes. Once you started to have that, then you started to have the knowledge connected to its source. You started to have, well, you know, was this St. Thomas Aquinas that was saying this? Was this Aristotle that was saying this? Um, was this, you know, is this just somebody else saying this? And your trust of the knowledge then became dependent on the person from whom it was coming. Yeah, that's, that speaks to credibility. I would say some of some of the the prelude to Descartes uh, that created a climate in which skepticism would find f- find some roots and grow some deep roots. They're still with us. Uh, were two two event two events. They're not the only two, but two big events. One is. You, in that time period, when you're thinking about, say, um, from Aquinas up to Descartes, so you're going from, you know, 1250 up until, you know, 1650. What, one of the things that happened during that time period is the Black Plague. The Black Plague introduces, so it sweeps through Europe on a, on a once a generation and multi- over 100 years time frame so you get wave after wave after wave and us having just been through or at the end, tail end of a pandemic but the mortality rate of the black plague is far higher and they didn't have an understanding of what it caused so it introduced into society a tremendous amount of uncertainty unpredictability um that shakes kind of the foundations of what's what's happening so that's number one another i think phenomenon that also is a uh contributor to this this other phenomenon of uh of sort of tilling the soil for skepticism is the discovery of the new world so that that is a that that is a game changer for europeans that there's this whole other new world out there uh that that's just been discovered and it it leads to something like a, a Charles Taylor's going to point to, which is it leads to a shift. He, he talks about a shift from an, of understanding uh, the, our, our world as a co- from a cosmos to a universe. And in a cosmos, he's, he's seeing kind of what you were alluding to a little bit, Mark, that the goal was to you're born into a certain family, certain place, certain time, and your goal is really to discover your place in the world, like what's and fit in and fit into that. This shift between uh, this this big move into modernity 
is a move into a universe which is compri- which is discoverable by it's not only discoverable through scientific for an emerging scientific method, but it also is one that is subject to progress. The inward move that Descartes that you've been talking about is a, a world in which for the first time, the world's really seen as something that can be improved upon. And because we can improve upon it, we can make progress to it. We ought to doubt. We, it's important to cast doubt on those things that have been handed to us because they're no longer permanent. They're now subject to change vis-a-vis improvement progress. And I think I think that's part of the story. Yeah, I think that you, I think you're exactly right. That that notion of sort of the changeability of knowledge, the, the the knowledge and our understanding of the universe isn't something that stays static and just gets handed down from generation to generation. Um, you know, you 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 think about St. Thomas's Summa, right? I mean, this is sort of the summation. So the, you know, his whole intent with the Summa is to sort of catalog and categorize what we already know, right? So so every this is everything that we know now it was very revolutionary but it wasn't intentionally so you know he's just simply trying to catalog all that we already know and then when you get to modern thought you're right you've got to shift to where now the idea is discovery it's to to push the boundaries it's to increase it's to grow our body of knowledge and um yeah i think you're exactly right that that's a huge characteristic of of modern thought and we need to take a break we're going to be back with more Looking at modern philosophy on the Catholic Cave, you're listening to Catholic Radio Indy. Polar bears are uncomfortable in Arizona. Parrots avoid Alaska. And you shouldn't get too comfortable here. God's got a place for you that's so much better. Heaven. Some environments are just better than others. Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy has a new look. It's our website. Yes, we have a new website that makes everything about Catholic Radio Indy easier. It's clean, straightforward, and simple to use. You can listen to us live, see our schedule, and our map. You can even silence your phone and take it right into Mass to follow the daily readings. And don't forget, you can get all of our programming through the podcast tab. This makes everything so much easier. So just go to catholicradioindy.org and check us out. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with Timothy O'Donnell, and we are trying to describe modern philosophy which in a lot of ways I, you know <laughs> good th- th- luck yeah exactly i mean it's tough for a couple reasons first off i mean obviously it's a, a huge wide diverse um subject but also it, it is kind of like the air we breathe so you know it's a little bit like you know a fish trying to describe the ocean um but right <laughs> you know it, Traditionally, Rene Descartes is kind of the first modern, you know, mm-hmm. modern figure, and and so he's kind of a milestone of this this movement into uh, into modernity. But as we were talking about it, you know, in some ways he was just sort of reacting to certain trends and certain um, movements that had happened within society leading up to Descartes. So um, there was an increased skepticism that was going on. And, and um, you know, that's really where Descartes starts. He starts from kind of a point of, of skepticism. Um, there was this notion of progress, and that's really Descartes' motivation, right? He, he's trying to build um, a body of knowledge rather than just sort of repeat what he had received. And then, you know, finally... Um, 
you know, I think there's this notion of, of personality and sort of a, an interiority of knowledge that, that happened where with, with the printing press and, um, you know, sort of movement out of knowledge being something that was contained in the universities. So when you went to the university, people were literate, but without a printing press, they had to write their own books, quite honestly. And a lot of the university classrooms were simply dictation. So you had, um, you know, you, you had a book that was dictated and then you had the students basically writing that book so that they would have their own books in, in part. But in that, it was a very different interaction with the knowledge, right? So when you're reading a book by having somebody read it to you and you are writing it out um, to be able to have your own book or when you're writing something you are having to kind of search around to find some other book that somebody else has written down to be able to incorporate it into yours. The idea of where these ideas came from isn't nearly as important as simply what the ideas were. With the printing press suddenly it's a whole new universe and uh, with, with the idea of sort of repeatable type and uh, you know, the ability to repeat a particular book over and over and over again verbatim, um, you know, the, this, this changed things immensely. So with, with that, you've got this, I almost say, move towards the, the recognition of authorship, authority, the interiority of knowledge, and all of that goes back to, uh, to Descartes, right? He, he, you know, his, his meditation, which I think, you know, his, his uh, meditations on first philosophy, I think that's where you can kind of say, okay, this is, if you want to look at what modern philosophy is, this, it, it may be encapsulating a lot of trends, but this is really kind of where it begins. So let's talk a little bit about Descartes and what he did with his, uh, with his meditations and what those meditations were like. I would say, yeah, that's a good point uh, to start, good place to start. I would say cup, uh, one thing that uh, uh, Rene Descartes is known for in those uh, first meditations is he's he's uh, he's already a gifted mathematician, and this again is I think something else that that's that's that sticks with us even to today, which is that he he uh, determines that mathematics delivers certainty that you have you can look at. Uh, mathematical equations, and you find certainty, you know, and, and any, you know, any, anyone who knows, say, basic arithmetic, you find a lot of addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, you find certainty, there's, there's really only one right answer when you solve a basic arithmetic problem. And so and he's doing a lot more advanced stuff than that. But he's, he's as a mathematician, he's, he's found that that mathematics delivers certainty in a way that he's, his learning um, from the Jesuits, he's a Jesuit-trained uh, person, schooled person, and he finds the, you know, the philosophy it lacks that kind of, of certainty or, or ability to reach certitude. So that begins, I th- that begins his project. And so uh, in order to uh, find certainty, his, his starting point is the radical skepticism in which he rejects all prior philosophical knowledge and tries to find, well, where can I anchor my, where's my first step in developing my, my own philosophy, my own system of philosophy? And so this is where you get the cogito ergo sum. He, he determines that, he arrives at the, the understanding that the only, uh, he, so he doubts all of his sense 
sense knowledge, all that stuff. And so he decides, well, what I know is, is that I, th- I think I'm a thinking thing. So that must, that will have to, that serves as my starting point. I think therefore I am. Yeah. And I think more important to his doubting all previous knowledge is he doubts it. He doubts his senses. And, and I think, I think yes. you're right, Tim, that goes back to his foundation as a mathematician and in, in doubting his senses, what he's doing is he's abstracting what he perceives to be reality from physical, sensible reality. So just like mathematics is an abstraction of, uh, you know, you, you don't actually see real triangles, right? I mean, you, you, you don't really see, um, yeah, you're not real... measuring triangles to do geometry per se. Right. And, and, and <laughs> anybody will tell you, well, a perfect circle doesn't exist. Right. I mean, you, right. you know, that, that, that idea in of, a material sense in, in that, that idea of the, the circle is exactly yeah. that it's a, it's an ideal. Um, and, yeah. and so as he abstracts, from reality to try to find what is certain, he moves away from the material into this abstracted understanding of reality. And there's a lot of power in that, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of things that, that can be done. There's a lot of progress that can be made when we recognize to a certain extent that the real is, is that we can think about the ideas, the the thoughts are abstractions from reality that we can then you know, manipulate, utilize, etc., within the confines of our own heads. Yeah. So he he arrives at some interesting, uh, somewhat somewhat uh, infamous conclusions. But a couple of things he he does retain, um, he does retain uh, and affirm the existence of God, and he does retain um, an understanding of the human person as body and soul. So I think those are helpful. Now he does something. Uh, that also is with us quite a bit. He, uh, in terms of a, uh, a lingering, uh, it's not just lingering, it's a big part of, I think, what how a lot of people uh, kind of understand themselves uh, to be, which is that the body and soul are distinct um, and, com- and can be completely separated. And therefore, you get thing, I would say, um, that's the, that becomes the sort of genesis of movement a movement like we have uh where people i'm not my body and when i'm not my body you know the inner me we might say the psychological self uh to borrow a term from like uh, truman or, or or taylor is gives then gives one permission uh to especially with the mindset of of continuous improvement or progress i can enhance or improve my body and this gives rise to things like i'll call it excessive tattooing uh, body augmentation, uh, scarification, piercing, and transgenderism. That's where I would say it ultimately, it, 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 those, those schools make use of, of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think though, the you're idea, kind of ghost in the machine. Yeah. The idea that your, your body is something that you own and possess is somewhat of a prerequisite for, for some of that. Although I would say, you know, a lot of it though, you know, uh, I think it goes back. I mean, you, you've got, you've got the idea of tattooing and, and body art that goes back to primitive cultures. So, and I would say those, those primitive cultures do not exhibit any sense of a, a mind body dualism whatsoever. Um, and so, you know, I think there's, but, but you would say they have a misunderstanding of anthropology though, if it's not that error. 
Maybe, maybe. Um, I don't know enough about, I don't know enough about, you know, ancient, ancient cultures that tattooed themselves to know what their anthropology was, to be honest, Tim. But (laughs) nonetheless. Well, if you're a betting man, I would say there's a good chance it's, there's an error at work. Well, that could be. That, 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 That could be that there's an error. Whether that's what led them to tattoo themselves or not, I don't know. But, um, anyway, going back though to this, this, this sort of mind body dualism that comes out of Descartes. Once again, it's, it's that abstraction, right? You're able to abstract your true identity from your physical appearance. And this would have just been completely befuddling, I think to medievals or to ancient Greeks or to ancient Romans, that there's this essence of you that is absolutely distinct that can be pulled out of your body to a certain extent and understood in its own terms. Um, I, I think this is even just like, a, I'll use the word incommensurable, right? This isn't even something that the ancients would be able to argue against. Um, it, it Because it's just so, I think, radically different than the way they saw things. And so um, with that, I think that abstraction, and, and it goes beyond just mind-body dualism. You have an abstraction for everything in the universe, right? Everything becomes both a physical manifestation of it and an idea of it. And once again, I don't know that that Aristotle or the ancients would have any idea. They would recognize form. They would recognize, um, you know, that the Things have certain, I guess, characteristics and and ways of acting, but that that was in any way something that was distinct, that could be abstracted and studied on its own terms. You know, that's a that's an incredibly modern idea. Correct. I mean, that's a separation. Uh, that would be a that's a complete separation between, say, form and matter. I think, which would be you're right, unknown. Um, but I do I do think as we as we think about we're coming up on a break here in a, in a minute or two. But I, I would say the next uh, part of this lineage, and we don't have to necessarily take them in order, chronological order, but another, uh, I, I would say, incredibly important thinker during this uh, modern philosophy period that we've been discussing is Jacques Rousseau. Because Rousseau is going to come along about 100 years later after uh, Descartes and he's going to uh, cause all kinds of mischief, I think, that we're living with because he's going to posit, he really cements in our, in our minds that uh, this notion that, uh, you know, I, I, my inner self is not my, my inner self is my real self, my, my body, um, and uh, including my, uh, my uh, gender, we'll use the, the, to use the current term, he wouldn't use that, is is a construct and imposed on me by uh, society. So society imposes its will on me, causing me to to conform in ways that are really unnatural. Um, and so my project is to liberate myself from social uh, norms to free my inner self and express my inner self. And then have one uh, affirm who I am. Yes. And we'll take that up uh, along with the troublemaker Rousseau. Right after this break, you're listening to The Catholic Cave on Catholic Radio Indy. 
You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with Timothy O'Donnell, and we are talking about modern philosophy. What characterizes modern philosophy? Where did it come from? Where it's going? Those types of questions. And we were talking about Rene Descartes in the the past um, in, the, in the past segment, and you brought up um, Rousseau as sort of the next step. And you know, I think that's. Partly because one of the big characteristics of modernity I see is a fixation on politics, right? And, oh, and, a, yeah. and a change yeah. of the way politics is understood. And I think it goes back, I think it fits within what we were saying about Descartes, that politics becomes a science of abstraction. So um, instead of recognizing that you have a, a, a society where you've, you've got people and you've got human beings pursuing what they perceive is going to make them happy and they work together within a community and that community forms to sort of pursue a common good for 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 the community etc suddenly the idea of what animates what brings a society together what society is becomes some sort of idea or ideal that is abstracted from real life communities. Suddenly there, there becomes this notion of politics that, that can be studied and looked at and discussed outside of what we would now, I think, call policy rather than politics. And um, Rousseau, I think, is one of the, the, I mean, he's one of the key players definitely within the, the political discussion of, of early modernity. And you know what, what Rousseau basically said was, you know, political nature, what, what politics does to us, what society does to us is not who we as human beings are originally made to be, you know, who we're made to be is, is, is free. And once we start to enter into society, that notion of, of who we are, once again, you've got to have an abstracted sense of human identity, just like kind of comes out of Descartes. You've got to have an abstracted sense of human identity to have an abstracted sense of communal identity, right? And so um, with Rousseau, you have this understanding of human nature as something that really exists outside and above and beyond the human communities we live in. Yeah, I would say he, I would say part of what he does, what he's, what he's up to, and maybe uh, you, you brought this up during the break, maybe I am reading too much of the current setting back into Rousseau, but I, I do think he he at least gets the ball rolling in this in down, at least down this lane and knocks down more than a few pins on, on in the journey. He's he's he is, uh, assumes that uh, not assumes, but I think he posits that the uh, that society is oppressive. Aside, that human beings are naturally good, and that it's it's society it's the oppressive societal norms. And roles that that were forced into that create all the mischief and problems in our lives, and so that's going to be really antithetical to the Christian to Christian anthropology because we have 
uh, the doctrine of original sin. Yeah, no, which I mean, he dispenses with. Right, right. He see, he sees things more in terms of happiness and unhappiness than he right. really does in terms of... He thinks of, we're happy until society comes exactly. along and, uh, and oppresses us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> human beings human beings are naturally happy when they're when they're when they're by themselves and, and, free. and solitary and free. Which, you know, right. I think that might tell a little bit about Rousseau's temperament. You know, yeah. that, that This is this is centuries before Lord of the Flies is written. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, it's kind of funny because you get back to the original story, and the original story, believe it or not, is the exact opposite of what that book was. Um, that, that you had a shipwreck of these boys, and the boys actually figured it out. They, they, they created mm-hmm. a little mini society um, there on this island and survived quite well until a naval officer came and um, and rescued them several years and was amazed that these boys had had really been able to to get along to work to cooperate etc and then yeah William Goldman took the the central story and he said right. well but what if it had been different right, and, and so right, right. so the actual story is the exact opposite of um, of, of what the uh, the the Lord of the Flies is but anyway um, that's a that's a side note um, but going back to Rousseau a little bit, um, yeah, Rousseau basically says we're happy as solitary creatures, and uh, we have very few needs, and that society, what it does is it imposes duties on it, and it restricts mm-hmm. our freedom. So as, yeah. as, we, as we, we... Sexual freedom is one he brings up. Well, yeah, yeah, in in some ways, not in not in the modern sense though, not not in the contemporary sense by any Well, no, stretch. the contemporary set, uh, setting is uh, you're right, is full of depravity that he, I think he would find unimaginable. Yeah. But he but he definitely took pot shots at marriage. He didn't think marriage was sustainable. Well, except for his uh except for his um uh, Emil. Um, you know, I mean that that definitely sort of puts forth a very glorified view of marriage, I would say. Mm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, nonetheless, um, you know, I, I think I think he um, I think he really explores the idea of marriage being based not on social convention and and right. being based on on social arrangements, but being based on genuine love for another person. Um, so he explores that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother show, I think. But, yeah. but anyway. <laughs> so so anyway, um, but but Rousseau's Rousseau's understanding once again of that human nature, that, that that central idea that human nature is something that was lost in antiquity, that we no longer have an understanding of, that if we study human beings, what we see is not really their true human nature. Um, you know, that's a, that's a very modern idea. That's a very abstracted idea. And, you know, I think it's, it, that's one of those aspects that I think is so much in the air and in the water that we can't even talk about Aristotle, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, you know, ancient philosophy or scholastic philosophy without reverting to our modern ways of trying to abstract human nature from the human being within which it exists. Yeah, I, I would say to the next person, I might I might advance it here just a little bit uh, for the sake of time. I'd say the next person that kind of I don't know if you would say maybe marks the sort of the end of the uh, period of modern philosophy, but anyway, but Friedrich Nietzsche, I think that's another person we got to make sure we we bring up uh, in our discussion of modern philosophy because he's another sort of titan um, who also has. Uh, 
uh, lingering. He's far more influential today than he was during his own right. lifetime. Right, and, and his influence is because he didn't buy into modern philosophy at all. He was a he was a major critic, and um, you know almost his whole almost his whole body of work is a criticism and critique of modern thought. And I think you're right. I think, you know, looking at Nietzsche is a great way to get at what modern thought is by looking at kind of what he's criticizing and what he's, um, what he's, what he's sort of poking at. And then, yeah, through that critique, it's not like we're able to ever revert back into scholasticism to a certain extent. No, we wind up moving off into, I guess, a more postmodernism. Yeah, postmodern is kind of a maybe a neo scholasticism, neo Thomism are are some efforts there that you find in the twentieth century and then um yeah, I would say we're in a full blown we might be in a new era. I'm not sure if it's even been named. Right. But I might say even postmodernism is has maybe been depleted or exhausted. But what what um, what Nietzsche takes up is the standpoint of objectivity, and that standpoint of object, you know, sort of being able to be objective. I think that is also a huge hallmark of modern thought. That for modern philosophy, objective knowledge is possible. You are able to look at things mm. in such a way that there are there you can basically look at the universe as if it's a, a big snapshot, a big picture, and be able to look at it from, from all angles, etc., in a way that you are not part of that picture and you are completely outside of it. And not only that, but the truth is captured in that picture, but that picture itself is not the truth. And I think the, um, you know, the, the truth is something that that's hidden within that you've got to be able to pull out and describe, but that there's some sort of truth that can be universally described that is hidden within that snapshot of reality that we can find at any given time. That, that really seems to me to be the stance that sort of characterizes modern thought. Yeah, there, there's there's something to be said about that. I, I also think, though, Nietzsche in particular, um, he's what a philologist, right? So he's a a, tra- a translator of of books and writings, and I think as as part of that, and he was a, he was a he was a genius, right? He was a, a like a full professor at age twenty two, which was really unheard of. Um, but I think along those lines, I, I've I've read I've read Nietzsche and and people have written in a biography on him. Um, that being a philologist and, and he's working with translation of, again, documents, documents that have been translated by others. And he begins to, I think it's called perspectivism. He begins to posit or come to the conclusion that we each bring a unique perspective to things. So when you're working, so you, you and I could look at the same ancient document, say a single piece of paper, and we might translate it differently or have different perspectives. I think that actually works to be becomes kind of a solvent in in dissolving this uh, the the foundation of the the uh, the uh, the transcendentals, the the true, the good, and the beautiful, and that things kind of dissolve under Nietzsche into more of a you have your perspective and I have my perspective, and this is what. This is what then also in this politicization that you've talked about emerging, maybe emanating from Rousseau now has you know been in the water for another hundred years. 
And this, this comes down to this contest of wills that he talks about, right? The will to power, that at the end of the day, what matters, what's really going on is a, is a battle, of will, battle of competing desires, battle of competing wills. And so it's, it's through strength and power is what really is going on. And I would say that is uh, identity politics. That's the that's the that's the that's the that's the energy, the fuel cell for identity politics. That's Nietzsche. Yeah. Oh, I definitely. I think you're you're exactly right. But I think where Nietzsche's coming from with that is he's critiquing. Um, you know, he starts off by critiquing Plato, um, and you know he he goes all the way back. And I think what he's looking at there is once again he recognizes that this idea that we can get objective knowledge of the universe by looking at the ideas and sort of meanings and things that are are hidden within reality in an objective way. He kind of looks at that and says, you know, that's only based on this idea that you can abstract sort of ideas. So that this whole mm-hmm. modern project of abstracting reality from the, the mode of appearances that Descartes starts with, Nietzsche looks back and he says, well, you know, that actually goes back to Plato and Plato's ideas and that, you know, reality isn't really the true thing that we're seeing. But underneath that, there was a different way of understanding the universe that the Greeks had. And that goes back to the, the cult of Dionysus, um, which, you know, the, the Dionysian cult is where literature came from. It's where art came from. Um, that's where the, um, the you know, the, the Dionysian festival was the festival where the Greeks um, had their plays presented. That's where Sophocles right, was right. presented. The fine arts are considered, right, the crown jewel. Exactly. And so what, what Nietzsche saw, saw was you can't abstract ideas out of the universe. The universe is dynamic. It's changing. It's it's constantly in flux, and we are part of that. And not only are we part of that, but we influence it. We, we kind of make it so. And so what he was urging people to do was to channel that and to find that. And in the process, you're exactly right. He kind of said, the only thing we can know is our own desires. The only thing we can know is our own, our own will and what we want. And that will has to manifest itself. And so he was urging people to allow their will to manifest itself. And I think he was trying to push people away from philosophy and in towards the arts, at least initially in his career. And with that, we need to take a break. We'll be back with more of the Catholic cave on Catholic radio Indy right after this. Hurting cars, trucks, homes, businesses, workshops, garages, man caves, and she sheds. We're with you wherever you go. Catholic radio Indy. Have you ever thought about joining the Catholic Church? Have you just wanted to explore the Catholic faith? All you need to do is call your local Catholic Church for more information. We are always happy to help you in your journey to discover and learn more about the Catholic faith. We have classes that are almost year-round, and the classes and information sessions do not involve making a commitment, and there is no pressure to join. Please call your local Catholic parish for more information today and start the journey of one day possibly becoming Catholic as well. God bless. And welcome back to The Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with Timothy O'Donnell, and we are talking about what characterizes modern philosophy. And, um, you know, we, we've 
we've we've gone from talking about sort of how Descartes was collecting certain things that were in the air at the end of the medieval period. Um, a couple of the things that we talked about, um, I think we want to go back and revisit as we, we, we kind of try to recap exactly what modern philosophy is. And, and I think we can do so through the lens of, of Nietzsche, who we, we brought up at the, the end of last segment. Nietzsche, in a lot of ways, is the close of the modern era. I think he, yeah, I think he was so. a critic. Um, he criticized modernity. And I, I think I, in a lot of ways, I think his criticism was right on. I think the aftermath of it we're still dealing with. But right. I think, um, you know, I think his, <laughs> he put his finger on something for yeah, sure. I think his criticism was was probably apt. But one of the the a couple of the the notions that were in the air at the end of the medieval period that then led up to I think this ability of Descartes to sort of start modern thought off with this idea that I am my thought basically. So so what I think in my soul and my spiritual world is completely separate and distinct from the material world. Um, a, a couple of things that led up to that. One is the idea of nominalism, right? And and this oh, is an important, yeah. crucial idea yeah. for understanding modern thought. And You're going to lay that from, at the feet of Occam? I'm going to lay that at the feet of Occam, yeah. So, <laughs> so, right. so, so William, William of Occam, Occam exactly. Yeah. So, Where um, we get Occam's razor from. Right. And, and ultimately what Occam did is he separated language from reality. So language then for Occam, it became a descriptive science. It became something that we're describing reality, not participating in reality. Mm. When we speak, um, what we're doing is simply referring to objects that exist independently of our speech. Once again, this is one of those concepts that we grow up with this. We know this. This is the water we drink. This is the air we breathe. So it's a little hard for us to think of the world in any other way other than language being descriptive. But prior to Occam, and you know, I'm not going to lay it all totally at Occam. I mean, he was sort of <laughs> categorized, cataloging other people's thoughts too. Um, I had this professor at Franciscan University and uh, yeah, he, he, he was a... Uh, yeah, he was, he was really great, Professor White. I don't know if he's still there or not, but yeah, this came up with Occam. We were taking a, it was a course on Franciscan theology and philosophy. And boy, he, he, would, he would push back hard. He would defend SCOTUS and Occam against all these charges and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, well, I'm not I, charging Occam with anything because once again, I think, you know, I think. Well, nominalism is a big troublemaker, I but, would say. Uh, but I think if you asked anybody, okay, is language ultimately descriptive? They would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does, does language actually have anything to do with, with reality? But they don't would you, say, don't no. Um, so, you know, and, and that break there, I think, between an understanding of what is real versus what is described in language, um, A, it's crucial for modernity, but it's also when you get to Nietzsche, that's part of what he's, that's part of what he's critiquing, is this split between the language and reality. And um, when you get into postmodernism, that becomes a dominant theme of, no, language is much more influential in the real than oh, just yeah. being descriptive. Well, that that goes to a, another quite sinister person, Michel Foucault. Uh, well, <laughs> which is another... I, I mean, among others. I mean, Derrida <laughs> yeah. before Derrida. Him, and, Derrida's and, yeah. really bad too. Yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> really bad dude. But anyway, it gets into postmodern thought. Nonetheless. There, I went ad hominem. I think. There, yeah, I'm a bad dude. Yeah, real troublemaker though. I will say. Right, but but this, this idea that language gives us the ability to describe, and not only the the ability to describe, but the ability to describe in the abstract. In other words, mm -hmm. it gives us the ability to talk about ideas that are 
outside of the real or contained within the real or in some ways mm. not what's manifest to the senses um, is a very modern thought. I don't, once again, think it would have even computed with somebody like St. Thomas Aquinas. And, um, you know, that becomes what Nietzsche ultimately criticizes, but it also becomes hugely important in modern thought. And it, it, it allows for scientific development it allows for science to really progress much beyond what it was it's not to say medieval science hadn't progressed because medieval science was kind of growing by leaps and bounds but this ability to abstract and the ability to use language simply as a describer and and to describe um catapult science forward but it also i think therefore leads to this separation between mind and and body between you know the idea and the ideal and reality and um you know that gets that's a theme that, that comes up over and over again and it's a, it's one that i think that's probably the central theme and exploration of of one of my great thinking heroes the i think the the central figure of modern thought is immanuel kant Oh, you got him in. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't for, can't forget Kant, right? 18th century. Right. right. Because that's ultimately what I think Kant was was wrestling with, was, okay, the, the world as it is versus the world as, as we describe it versus the world as we perceive it and think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all three different actions, and how do those play together, and how do those fit together? And that, that's kind of the central question, I think, that, that Kant really kind of wrestled with. Well, and I, th- I think Kant, too, I, I don't know what... I don't t- tell me you think of this, Mark. I think one of the things. So when Kant is is one of his projects is the critique of pure reason. So part of his project. So he has, I think, um, a tremendous confidence in the faculty and capacity of human reason. I think that's a mo- that's an inward move. Um, that, oh, definitely. And so, uh, so yeah. In that sense, he's he's definitely a hallmark. He few have been. I mean, he's just a giant. When you study any period of, you look look across the history of philosophy, Immanuel Kant has to be on the list. Um, and his his attempt to kind of synthesize um, this this inward experience of of oneself, one's existence, and the exterior world, and kind of bringing that together. I think was 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 certainly uh, innovative um, and a, a kind of synthesis. Um, I don't know that it's. I don't know that you find many Kantians still running around the way that you might find a Thomist. No, no, and and part of that is I think part of that is the the consequence of of Nietzsche. So Nietzsche, um, in in a lot of ways, you know, his legacy is is kind of putting that final stake in um, the idea of metaphysics outside of Catholic or Christian philosophy. So so because of Nietzsche, in some ways, metaphysics almost becomes a branch of theology rather than a branch of philosophy. I almost get, yeah, I I get that. I think there's also, this is going to extend maybe uh, outside of philosophy and and maybe at the tail end of modernity. But I do do think Freud's going to play a role in that too, because Freud brings about psychology and psychoanalysis in a way that that is given the tremendous amount of uh, prominence and and credibility he, he, you know uh, a lot of freud's uh as as i understand a lot of it, that's a little outside of my area of expertise a lot of stuff maybe isn't kind of been debunked that kind of stuff but but his influence freud's uh, influence um is is with us very much and it is a kind of 
um, he he's I would say credited with picking up on this this uh, these themes that are coming out of the uh, phil- the the philosophical streams of the modern era, and then he's going to sexualize them. That's what he's going to do, and that's what's going to lead up to like the sexual revolution. Yeah, but going back to Kant for a second. <laughs> going back to Kant for a second. Um, so when when you look at modern thought and you've got this idea of abstraction and you've got the, the, the whole world looking as sort of two separate worlds, you've got the world of ideas. Um, and I mean, these, these go back to Descartes too. You've got the res cogitans, the, the things of thought, mm-hmm. and then you've got the things of, of reality. You, you've got the, the sensible objects, etc. And, um, you know, Kant was reacting to David Hume, who basically put a massive amount of skepticism into this idea that there are actually things of thought, um, that, yeah. that there is anything I'm, I'm glad you brought of, up Hume too, because he's right. another modern thinker that's super important right um the, but the, but you know according to hume and a, a few others the only things that we could really know with any type of certainty were those things that we could perceive with our senses and um you know the this contrasted with um with um um leibniz and um spinoza spinoza maybe, maybe and, and a few others that were more in continental philosophy and that was sort of the milieu that that kant grew up in once again he was a brilliant brilliant philosophical mind shot up the ranks of uh, university professorship very quickly um was a lecturer but then after a while he he began to see this disconnect between what was going on with english philosophy and hume to a certain extent and what was going on um with leibniz who was sort of his predecessor and um others that were looking more in the world i would say of the world of 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 thinking the world of thought the world of ideas and he tried to figure out how do these two fit together? How do the ideas that on the one hand we're talking about as being completely abstracted from reality, how do they fit within the senses, which on the other hand is really ultimately what we can kind of know with any sort of certainty because that's what we can perceive through, through our senses. How do these two fit together? And that's when he went back to metaphysics. He said, we need, we, we basically need a metaphysics and our current metaphysics is no longer computing adequate well not only adequate but i mean i think you you it goes back to where the understanding of the universe is almost incommensurate between scholastic metaphysics and modern thought the 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 two don't even it's you're you're trying to cram a square peg into a round hole and so well that's a move from cosmos to universe that uh, taylor's talking about exactly yeah yeah i think there, there there's a lot a lot to that so kant tried to then rebuild a modern metaphysics he tried to build a metaphysics of the mind a metaphysics that is interior to man and that was what, what he called his his big um sort of copernican revolution in philosophy <laughs> yeah it might be a little bit would, of, you, would uh, you chalk that up to like epistemology would, is that where you would place no that effort you would no i wouldn't no because epistemology is really how we know things and what Kant mm-hmm. was getting at is those things that we kind of have to have as sort of a ground level immersion within the universe 
to be able to even have the possibility of epistemology. So he was looking at, okay, what, what, what does the mind have to be able to do to be able to even know something? And so I think, you know, he was, he was laying metaphysics as the groundwork for epistemology, which is, you know, Thomas Aquinas wouldn't disagree with that. He would say, of course, the approach, you know, of course, metaphysics is the groundworks for epistemology, but the, the understanding of where those two came from were, were slightly different. And we've circled back to St. Thomas Aquinas, which is a great place to end the show. That's all the time we have for the Catholic Cave for this week. I'm Kent Blanford for Timothy O'Donnell for Mark Tuttle. Until next time, be holy. The Catholic Cave is a production of Catholic Radio Indy. Replays of this program are available in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org. Comments about this program can be addressed to Kent at catholicradioindy.org or by calling 317-870-8400. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.